All right, well, welcome back everyone. Uh, thank you for, for being here again. My name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Risha. Uh, very happy to have everyone here for our next class for Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative uh, with Trisha and with Rabbi David Silber, uh, the founder and dean of Trisha. Uh, most of you have, have been here for, for the series before, but we started this back in the fall and have been continuing it uh, over the past number of months doing a close reading of the Abraham narrative in Genesis, uh, starting at the very beginning of chapter 12 and now working our way up through chapter, uh, last, last time we finished chapter 16, we talked about the relationship between Sarai and Hagar, uh, about Hagar meeting with the angel in the wilderness and being told about the eventual birth of Ishmael. Uh, we are going to be picking up today with uh, the beginning of chapter 17 of Genesis and, and going from there. Uh, I'm gonna be pulling that up on the screen share so that people can follow along. You're also welcome to follow along at home if you've got a, a Chumash or a Tanakh or a book of your own that you wanna use. Um, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Okay, welcome, welcome everybody. Good to be with you. I uh, just wanted to, before we start chapter 17, just to say one word about the end of chapter 16. Chapter 16, as we saw, is Hagar's running away into the desert, where she is met by this angel of God, who speaks to Hagar, who tells her to return home. Hagar doesn't respond. And then uh, there are three statements by the angel uh, to go home, no response. There's a blessing, no response. And then go back, God has heard your, your suffering. Shema Hashem Elanyech. And then she responds. She calls the angel or God, the seeing God. So uh, the angel said to her, you will have a child. God has heard your suffering, and you will call the child Yishmael. So the first thing that's interesting here, of several interesting points, is that at the end of the chapter, says that Hagar did give birth, in fact. That's verse number 15. So we're told at the end of the chapter that Avram actually names the child Yishmael. Now the name Yishmael was the name the angel said, you shall call him Yishmael. Namely, the angel said it to Hagar. Sounds like you will call him Yishmael means you'll name the child Yishmael. That's certainly what it sounds like, but the end of the chapter says that Avram actually names the child Yishmael. So what are we to make of that? So there are different ways to understand that. I would suggest that what the chapter is saying in effect is this child that's born to Hagar, and this is the child that Sarah had thought would be her child. She would be the mother of the child, much as later on with Rachel, that's what Rachel does. She gives her shifcha to Yaakov, but the child, children born from that union are in fact also Rachel's children, Rachel names them. Not only does Rachel name them, but the first child Don, God heard my, my, my voice and gave me a son. And she named this child Don. 
But over here, we don't have that. We have the name identified as right, associated with Avram. We have the name associated with Hagar, but we don't have the name associated with Sarah. So what it sounds like is that the child is actually not going to be Sarah's child. At this point in time, in chapter 16, the child that is born, which was a response to Avram's prayers in chapter 15, Avram said, you haven't given me a child. He said, me, not us. And over here, the story of Hagar, Shema Hashem So Sarah's out of the picture in chapter 16. It's not going to be her child. And in conjunction with that, there's something else very curious about the language of chapter 16 that we didn't mention last week. And that is that the angel says to Hagar, uh, back in chapter 16, verse number 11, Behold, you are hara, you are. So the translation that you have before you, it says, you are with child and shall bear a son. But can be read equally. Actually, if we didn't have the context at all, we would probably translate, you will become with child, you will become pregnant and give birth but she already is pregnant actually. That precipitated the entire story. So what does it, the language of is a strange one. Since she already of course is pregnant, that's the whole point. When she becomes pregnant right away, she looks down or she belittles Sarah. So why the use of this term, these words? And perhaps what it's about is she is in fact pregnant already but it says, and it's, in, it's a medrash that she that she had a uh, a miscarriage and she got pregnant again. But that's not in the text. But the medrash is after something, and that is because the medrash is bothered. I mean, you will be pregnant. You are pregnant. Says the medrash. One view she miscarried. Okay, but that's not the pshat. But the pshat is something else, and that is what I just suggested, namely that the birth be fully identical. Because when she became pregnant. She became pregnant as Sarah's surrogate. But the point over here in chapter 16 is that the child to be born to Hagar is her child. The naming is an act of parenthood. Rachel named Don, but Hagar names Ishmael. And it actually, of course, is parallel to Avram's naming of Ishmael. God has heard my prayer. Avram sees in Yishmael the response to Avram's prayer in chapter 15, and Sarah is out of the picture. So what's interesting is, this is chapter 16. We're gonna move now to chapter 17. But we have to remember something about the Avram stories in general. And that is that the Avram stories, the Avram narrative consists largely of doubled stories. There are two stories. There are two Avimel stories. There are two Lot stories. There were two Hagar stories. There are two Lechuchas. There are two sister stories. They're doubled stories. And when you have double stories, of course, that calls for the reader to look at the two stories together. So chapter 16 is the first time that we find Hagar running away from uh, Sarah. She takes herself out of the picture. She runs away because Sarah has abused her. But in chapter 21, that's the chapter in which 
after Sarah gives birth in chapter 21, and she sees uh, the son of Hagar in chapter 21, Mitzachek, laughing or mocking. And she goes to, and we'll get to that story later. That's a, obviously a critical chapter, but she says to Avram, Avraham at that point, chase out, kick out the slave woman and her son. The slave woman and the son cannot inherit with my son, with Isaac, right after Isaac's birth. And the matter was evil, the Torah says, the matter was evil in Abraham's eyes on account of his son. That's chapter 21. Just find that verse. We don't have it before you. It's chapter 21, verse number um, 11. 21, verse 11. The matter was evil. That's a very interesting verse. And that is because the matter was evil on account of his son. At that point, Abraham has two sons. Isaac has been born, and he has Ishmael, the older son, 13 years older. So the Torah might have said the matter was evil on account of Ishmael. Presumably, what's, 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 what bothers Abraham is the idea to kick out, to throw out Ishmael. After all, Abraham called the son Yishmael. He sees in Yishmael God's response to Abraham's prayers. Now to, to, to banish this child is very difficult for Abraham. So the Torah could have said, to disambiguate, the Torah could have said, the matter was evil in Abraham's eyes on account of Yishmael. What do we make of the fact that the Torah said in chapter 21, the matter was evil on account of his son? So that suggests that actually the use of the ambiguous, his son, which the context disambiguates, suggests to us that if you stopped Abraham in the street in chapter 20, when it said, quick, what's the name of your son? His answer would be Yishmael. That's a very important point. For Abraham, Yishmael is his primary son. It's the one he prayed for. Never prays for Isaac. It's the one he prayed for, and he sees in the birth of Yishmael a response to his prayers, Yishmael. So his son is actually Yishmael. Having said all that, when God says, obey Sarah, and we'll get to that in chapter 21, he does. Gets up early in the morning, and he sends Yishmael away with his mother, with Hagar. And in that story of sending Yishmael away, and this is the point I want us to think about as we continue our studies through the Avram narrative, and that is one way to understand that. Well, we can ask the question, how does Yishmael relate to Avram after Avram sends him away? In chapter 16, Sarah's out of the picture. But what about in chapter 21? He loves his son and he's been promised a blessing. But at the end of the day, he sends him away. So one could read chapter 21 as at least from the covenantal standpoint, in chapter 16, yes, no, Sarah's out of the picture. And in chapter 21, Abraham largely is out of the picture. And we'll see, I think that is actually a good reading of this of the story. So at the end of the day, the primary parent of Ishmael is just gonna be Hagar. And we'll see how that plays out in the Chumash. I think that's an important point in the larger story, but we have to keep in mind that second piece of the story. One last point about chapter 16, then we'll move to 17, 
And that is, we noticed last week that when the angel speaks to Hagar, and there are three separate statements the angel makes to Hagar, each of those three verses at the end of chapter 16 begins with the same words, Hashem, the angel of God said to her. Three consecutive verses, three consecutive statements by the angel. So we ask the question, what do we make of the fact that each of, uh, that each of the verses is introduced with Hashem, even though there's no intervening speech? The angel is doing all the talking. That's why some Midrashim suggest there's more than one angel. But in the text, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like one angel. So what do we make of the fact that each verse begins with the words, Hashem. So there are different suggestions in general when you have the same person speaking, and yet the Torah introduces that person's speech with Vayomer X. So there are different reasons, perhaps, why the Torah might be doing that. I don't think there's one answer for all the cases, but there is one answer that fits many of the cases, and that's what we suggested last week. It's when an answer is hoped for or expected, but not forthcoming. So the angel says, go back and, and hitani tachet yodera, and there's a silence. We, the reader expects Hagar to say something. She says nothing. So then the angel continues, sweet, sort of sweetens the pot, but if you go back, there'd be a great reward. No answer. And finally, when the angel says, God has heard your suffering, which means there won't be more suffering. You've suffered enough. There'll be, there'll be reward for your having suffered already, but you are refusing to accept the suffering from here on. And since the terms of the covenant are Gerard, Abnut, and Inui, you have to be willing to accept that. And Hagar is not willing to accept that. We understand that but then she can't be covenantal in this particular covenant with these particular terms. So I want to give another example where we have exactly this, where, this, where the Torah has, I didn't ask you, I'll just tell you what it is. Don't have it in front of you. I mean, you could find it easily. It's in the book of Bamidbar chapter 32. And that's the story where two of the tribes decide they don't want to cross over the Jordan River. They prefer to take their portion on the other side of the Jordan because the grass is greener there and they have a lot of cattle. That's the story in chapter 32 of Bamidbar of B'nai God and B'nai Ruven. I just cite this as an example. There could be many other examples of this, but I cite this as an example. The Torah says, uh, Ruven and God, two tribes that sort of travel together in the desert, the way the camps are set up. They have a lot of cattle and they saw and they saw that the place was good for cattle. So they're supposed to cross over into the promised land, which in the Torah is on the other side of the Jordan. They don't want to cross the Jordan River. They're happy with the, with the it's good for their cattle. So they got in, in the second Pasuk in chapter 32, you have it right there. They speak to the authorities, Moshe, Lazar, Sierra, Ada, and they say, they name the places, these, these, these eight places. This land that we are presently in, these eight cities, 
the ones that God gave us when we defeated Sichon and Og and those wars, that's a very good place for cattle. It's cattle country. And your servants have cattle. And the next verse, Vayom rule begins with, and they said, but there's nothing, there's nothing in between. The word Vayom rule seems completely superfluous. Vayom rule, they said, if we find favor in your eyes, may this land be given to your servants as a possession. <coughs> Don't bring us across the Jordan River. And then Moses responds with the lengthy response. The first thing he says is what? Your brethren should fight and you're going to stay here. That's how Moshe starts. And he goes, it gets worse from there. My point is, what is the second verse beginning with Vayomru? And the answer, I think, is obvious. Because the first verse, I'm sure we've all done this, they, they don't want to cross over. But they're afraid to ask directly, because they know probably that Moshe's response will not be favorable. They probably didn't know the extent of how unfavorable. But why? We want to take our land now. We don't want to help the others gain their portion. So they, they hint at it. You know, they say to Moshe, you know, it's beautiful land over here. It's wonderful for cattle. And, you know, we have, we, we have a lot of cattle. So they're not even asking him directly not to cross over. They're hinting at it. And their hope is that Moshe will say, you have cattle, good cattle land. Why don't you just stay here with the cattle? That makes total sense. That's what they're hoping for. Moshe's silent. And then they have to, he forces them to make a direct request. I have other examples of this as well. And then they have to say what they're thinking. Please. Don't bring us across the Jordan. Let us stay here. As a, let this be our possession, not the promised land. In which Moshe, of course, I would think a good part of it. Moshe has a uh, has a cow. I would say over here. Moshe has a cow. Not a bad part. Point. Of, what do you mean you stay here? They fight and you stay, and it gets worse from there. This is a good example of where the Vayomru is there, because they're hoping for. And if they're expecting, they're hoping for a response to their hint. But Moshe doesn't take the bait. He forces them to make the request. And then when they make the request, he tells them what he thinks of the request. There are other examples as well. So that's what we might have in the Hugger story. That each time he, you expect Hugger to say something. Go back and be abused. Okay, we understand she doesn't want to do that. But if God is God, or the angel is suggesting it, there must be a positive side to that. But she just is silent. But if you do it, there's a big reward. She's still silent. Okay, no more abuse. Then she then she responds. Okay, anyway, let us now begin our chapter 17, our chapter for the for the day. I would say that I would say just to interrupt you briefly, I'm sorry, that that through that through the second um, thing that the angel says, she still remains in the game to possibly be the covenantal partner. She only loses it after that. Right, she loses it when she explicitly, when the angel then makes the offer to- The third offer. The third offer, which is no more abuse, but you know, she's right. I think the second offer might've been, she could have said, you know something? Yes, I'll go back and I'll accept the Inui. And the angel sort of sweetened it by saying this Inui, but on the other hand, on the other side of it, there's even, it's a great blessing. The angel makes that explicit. Well, that's the covenant between the pieces. Of course it is. That's what she's rejecting. That's exactly my point. Yes. She's, actually, she's rejecting chapter 15. I'm just making the point through the second, she's still in it. 
Just yeah, yeah, we are, we don't we we're, we're okay. on the same page. Let's chat, let's start with chapter seventeen. Let me just stop for a minute. Anybody have something to say at this point, and then I will speak up. If anybody has something to add or question in the chat or whatever. Nothing, Michael. Okay. Oh uh, no, I, I just uh, I I had just asked uh, about the. Uh, it sounded like. Like uh, he's been tested with one son. Why is he has to be tested with the other one later? So. Tested with one son in terms of Yishmael you're talking about? Yeah, in other words, Yishmael was kicked out. Okay, so he gave up his son. It seems like the Akeda is okay. I mean, it seems like overkill <laughs> to- uh, Oh, you're asking a question. What is the purpose of the Akeda? We'll get to that. That's obviously a, a central, maybe the central question. What is the purpose of the arcade? Yeah. We will discuss the arcade some way. Sure. Um, our goal with the arcade, by the way, just to want to make one point clear about a, a general approach to everything we do, at least in my sessions. I can't speak for anybody else, but the goal that we have in these sessions is to try to understand what the text is saying. That's our goal. Our goal is once our goal is to do exegesis. We're trying to understand what the text is saying. And there's something after we understand what we believe the text is saying, and there's another question. What do we make of that? How do we respond to it? What do we think of it? Those are all valid questions, but they come after we first understand what the text is saying. We're trying not to read in our own inclinations, prejudices, or whatever into the text. We're trying as much as humanly as possible. I know it's difficult to do it. Some think it's impossible. We're trying to figure out what the text actually says. So we get to the Akeda, of course. We gotta be careful with the Akeda. The Akeda is very troublesome in many ways, but we have to try the best we can to try to figure out what the Chumash actually is saying and not try to read in all kinds of things into the Akeda. Uh, there's a, a great temptation to, uh, to do that. And I think in many have been uh, given into the temptation. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to the Akeda. The question is a central question. What is the point of the Akeda? We'll get there. All right, let us, let us get to now chapter 17. It says, Vahi Avram ben tishim shana v'tesha shanim ve'ero Hashem al-Avram v'yom re'lov ani'el shadai yitarech l'fonai v'hiyei tamim. So Avram is 99 years old, the last verse of chapter 16, when Yishmael is born, he's 86. So 13 years have passed. 13 years have passed. Nothing seems to have changed yet. And now suddenly God speaks to Avram at age 99. The, the language of the verse is by Yerah Hashem Avram, God appeared to Avram. That's a very interesting expression, by Yerah Hashem Avram. That's how chapter 17 begins. That's how chapter 18 begins exactly the same way. And it actually underscores a point that I mentioned last week that we'll get to later when we get to chapter 21, that the Torah did not say that God appeared unto Hagar. Hagar says it, The Torah says quite the opposite also, or differently. Shema Hashem el God has heard on And the word only in the Bible typically takes the verb to see, not to hear. So it's interesting to, and we have to keep this in mind, seeing versus hearing. 
here in the beginning of chapter 17, right off, by Yerah Hashem el Avram, which is how chapter 12 also began. Haaretz Asher Ar Eka, by Yerah Hashem el Avram. And again in chapter 18. So we bear this in mind. God appears to Avram, and God says to Avram, Ani El Shaddai. There's a new name for God. We've never encountered this name before. Shaddai, a mysterious name. Shin Dawid Yud, Tamim. The verse is, as many interesting questions can be asked about this verse, first verse of chapter 17. Let's begin with the first question, which is what does the name Shaddai mean? It's a very good question and there are many responses to it. And it may have more than one meaning. The names of God obviously are very important. Here is not just Shaddai, I'm El Shaddai. So what is the, as best we can figure out, the significance of this particular name? What does it actually mean for starters? And what is its significance? So the, the commentaries all ask the question, the ancients, the moderns, everybody's interested in this particular name of God, Shindawad Yud. And um, the two main, I would say the two main, uh, two main or the most plausible interpretations, I think, um, you know, apart from stuff like there was an ancient mountain which, which the Canaanites worshiped God and that kind of thing, which I have no way to verify one way or the other. But the word Shaddai has two possible meanings. The Ibn Ezra thinks that the word Shaddai is related to the word Shodayd, to, to, to be powerful, I would say. Powerful often in war, to destroy the enemy. Shodayd is one possibility. And the word Shodayd means a powerful God. There is a Midrashic interpretation of the word, which is certainly not the Pshat at all. Um, it's still enough, the pshat. I'll get to the second possibility, Gail, in the chat. Yes, I'll get to that in a second. That's what I do think it means, actually, but I want to talk about that. But the, the Midrashic meaning, in the Talmud, we, we have the word Shaddai is Shaddai. Dai means sufficient. The one who said enough sufficient. And that is the idea, which I say the Kabbalists would probably argue it's one and the same. The idea of the God who's capable of restraining or in Kabbalistic terminology, tzimtzum, restraint or constraint, which is related to the idea of, 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 uh, of, of might, of power, of, of, of gvura. Quality of gvura from the Kabbalistic perspective is often identified as the quality of restraint, of tzimtzum. So that's one possibility for Shaddai. It wouldn't explain why over here though, we have this particular name, very striking. It's the first time in the Bible we encounter this name. So I think if we're looking at least in the book of Breshit and the beginning of the book of Exodus, the name appears six times. And it strikes me that it always actually means pretty much the same thing. And it's, I think, related to the Hebrew shade or Shaddai, which means breasts. And I think what it refers to actually, I am, I, I would say kind of fertility God. I am a fertility God. I am the God who promises because Abraham has been promised Already back in chapter 15, he will have a son, and he has a son. Yishmael, God has heard my, my prayers. So from Abraham's perspective, God has answered Abraham's prayers. 
God did answer Abraham's prayers of chapter 15, because in chapter 15, Abraham said to God, I am going, I, I go without children. You haven't given me a child. What he never said was, you haven't given us a child. So Sarah thought she would have this child, Yishma would be her child through a surrogate mother. By the end of chapter 16, as we have seen, that's not happening. So now God proactively steps forward and introduces to Abraham the God of the covenant, but the God who is the God of fertility. And that's Ani El Shaddai. And the reason I say that, this I think is by far and away the most plausible meaning within the confines of Sefer Breshit in the beginning of the book of Exodus, because the name appears six times. And what's striking is that the names, in my view, in every case, mean the same thing, which is the God who promises heirs, descendants, fertility, growth, etc., the growth of the family. For example, here we have chapter 17, verse number one. But if you look ahead, and Michael, you can put this up on the thing, in chapter 35, that's when God speaks to Yaakov after Yaakov has returned from the house of Ravan in chapter 35, um, verse number 11. Verse number 11, chapter 35, verse 11. And I'll read it to you. Vayomolo Elohim, this is after Yaakov returns. God blessed Yaakov when he returned. Vayomolo Elohim, Ani El Shaddai, pray Ureve. I am Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. So I am El Shaddai, same name, be fruitful, multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall descend from you. And kings, kings will descend from you as well, right? And, and I will give you the, the land, the land that I promised to give to Avram and Yitzchak, I will give to you and your descendants. The verses prior to this in chapter 35, God said to Yaakov, Elohim Shimcha Yaakov, your name is Jacob. In verse number 10, Yaakov. No longer shall your name be Jacob or only Jacob. Kim Yisrael your name is Israel. Yisrael, and God named him Israel. Now why do I cite these verses here? And this, by the way, the verses of chapter 35 are almost repeated verbatim when Jacob talks to Joseph prior to his death in chapter 48. But leave that aside. Also, El Shaddai. El Shaddai But if you look at the verses uh, that when God speaks to Yaakov in chapter 35, we are struck by something about that, that, those particular set of verses. If you go back to chapter 17, if you look at chapter 17 now, our chapter, you will see that much of what Yaakov, much of what God says to Yaakov in chapter 35, we have in chapter 17. For example, if you scroll down in chapter 17, you see, for example, um, Chapter 17, let's see, verse number five. Shimcha Avram. God says to Avram, uh, you're gonna be an Avhamon Goyim, 
a father of a multitude of nations. Verse number five. So there's a change of name. Remember in chapter 35, what God said, your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel. And God called him Israel. And God said to Jacob, pray or revey, be fruitful and multiply. Next verse. God said to Jacob in chapter 35, Kings shall emerge from you. God says to Abraham in verse number six, so we have the blessing of fertility, the blessing of many nations, the blessing of kingship and land. And not only that, if you scroll down a little more in our chapter, in chapter 17 to verse number 15, lo and behold, we have something similar when it comes to Sarah. Verse number 15, The change of name. She's not Sarai, she's Sarah. And now the next verse. I will bless her. Right? God blessed Jacob in chapter 35. I will bless her. Here we have it. She will not only have a, a child and be blessed, but she will become nations. She shall give rise to nations. And not only that, rulers, kings will descend from her. Notice the parallel between Abraham and Sarah in the chapter. The change of name, the blessing of a child, and kingship. And we have exactly the same thing when it comes to Jacob. Your name is not Jacob, your name is Israel. Goyu kahal goyim, pray or be fruitful and multiply. So it's actually very interesting that we have, and the name Shaddai in all three places. All three places and, and, and uh, two places there. And then we have the third place in chapter 48, in which Yaakov recounts to Joseph what happened when he came into the land. We can't get into that now maybe someday, and the two other places in, in Breshit, not discussing that now, but three of the places clearly relates to in 48, fruitful and multiply. So therefore, I think it's fair to say, and quite plausible, I think the most plausible, that the name Shaddai is actually Shaddai, it's breasts, and it relates to having children and actually sustaining the children. And this is the name over here, El Shaddai. This is the name. And what's interesting is that in the beginning of the book of Shemot in Exodus, when God speaks to Moshe, God says to Moshe, after Moshe complained to God, you sent me to Egypt and things got worse and not better. In the beginning of chapter six, God said to Moshe in chapter six of Shemot, and we'll get back to that chapter later. That's a very important chapter for us this morning. But uh, just if you keep reading a couple more verses, let's see. Here it is. I am Hashem. That's my name. And then the second, verse number three. 
I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob with the name Shaddai. I did not make myself known to them by the name Hashem, Let's leave out the question that it seems to be untrue that God did speak to Abraham with the name Yudevavet. Ani Hashem in chapter 15. Ani Hashem asherotzitichem ayur kastim. What do you mean, no no dati am? Good question. Is a good answer. But that's not our problem right now. My point is that when God speaks to Abraham in chapter, in Moshe, in chapter 6 of, 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 of Shemot, hope we get there in a few minutes, God says explicitly, when I spoke to them, it was in the in the aspect of my name Shaddai, not with the name Yud Hevavet. The names are incredibly important. So the promise, the promise, I would say the covenantal promise, is with the name Shin Dawid Yud. Right? The next verse. Hakimoti yet briti tam eretz It's explicit. Eretz We'll come back to these verses again. I established my covenant with them. With which name did I establish my covenant? Shindavadud. Not with the name Yudhevafe. What that means, we will suggest in a few minutes, but I'm simply pointing out that the significance of this particular name, and I think that's what I suggested is most plausible. And uh, the names, of course, in general have enormous significance. So that's the first point of this. Let me just make a couple of other points about verse number one of chapter 17 that I'll pause for comments or questions. So we're told that Avram is 99, God appeared to Avram, Ani El Shaddai, Kitalech Lefonai Tamim. What a verse. So the question now is, we dealt with the name Shindawid Yud. Now we want to understand Kitalech Lefonai and Heye Tamim. Two commands, walk before me be or become tamim, whole, perfect, whatever tamim means. That's a very important question. What is tamim? The first point is what we're struck by, I think, as we read chapter 17, verse number one, we are reminded of a different verse in the Torah, which preceded us. It preceded the Abraham narrative. In fact, it's when the Torah introduces us I mean, he's already introduced a bit earlier, but the main verse in Noah, Ewa told Noah. These are the, the, the line of Noah. Noah is chapter six, verse number nine, beginning of Parshat Noah. Ewa told Noah. Noah is tzaddik. Noah was a righteous man. Tamim hayabedorotav. He was tamim, if they translate blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. So what's striking is when you read about Noah in chapter, in chapter 6, Eloh told Noah, it's stated as a fact. He's a tzaddik. He's tamim bedorotav, and he walks with God. And now when it comes to Abraham, he's commanded by God, walk before me, as if he hasn't walked before up to this point. Noah has stated in the very first verse, Ewa told Noah, he walked with God. And secondly, Hayyei Tamim and Bi Tamim, 
suggests that he's not yet Tamim, which is striking because when it comes to Noah, it says Tamim Hayyabidovotav. Now we could distinguish Noah from Abraham in the following sense, that when it comes to Noah, the Torah did add one qualifier, which our tradition has picked up and Rashi cites it as well, Tamim Hayyabidovotav. He was blameless in his generation, which could be read as he was pretty good in that generation. But of course, that generation was very bad. They were wholly wicked. Noah was the only righteous one. So if it's taken as, as relative, then perhaps it's not the greatest compliment in the world to say that he's better than Doa Mabo. Okay. The second point of interest is, is there a difference between to walk with God which is what it says with Noah. Et Elohim Noah. Noah walked with God. But over here, Abraham is commanded something else. After God introduces God to Abraham, God said, doesn't say walk with me. It's walk with Fanai. Is there a difference between walking before me and walking with me? That's the question. So when I read the Ramban, it struck me that the Ramban distinguishes between the two. And if I understood the Ramban correctly, if I didn't understand them correctly, then he said something different. So then what I'm saying is I'm saying, so you can blame me. But uh, I think the Ramban is getting at this point. And that is, is walking with God and walking before God. I think what the Ramban gets at I think this is actually a very important point in Pshat of the Chumash and in general, which is there's walking with God and that is what Noah does. Noah does what he's commanded to do. The Torah makes it clear, by the way, when you read the Noah passages in chapter six and chapter seven, the Torah says on four different occasions, Noah did that which God commanded him to do. He got a command, build the ark, go into the ark, leave the ark. He does what God commands him to do. And the Torah calls that walking with God. But to walk before God perhaps means something else. To walk before God is to walk in front of God as it were. And that is that in walking in this world, we are doing what we're supposed to do without being commanded. We can kind of intuit what God might want. You reach a point where you come to an understanding of what is the right path, at least the right path for, for uh, you. And you don't need to be commanded. So perhaps that's what it means, I was thinking of this in terms of the Akedah, actually. Because at the Akedah, when the angel calls down from heaven and says, don't sacrifice your, your son, says Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw a ram entangled in the in the in the brush. And he went and he took the aisle and he brought it instead of his son. The Torah never commanded, God never commanded Abraham to do that, actually. All the angel said was, Don't slaughter your son, don't sacrifice your son. Right? Don't 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 right. But Avram figures out what that means. Must mean that there's a surrogate, that there's a proxy, that my son is not to be sacrificed. God doesn't want that. But from a symbolic perspective, maybe God does want that. 
and Avram looks up and sees on his own. He doesn't have to be commanded. In fact, I would argue that in general, after the Akedah, he's never commanded. Not because God is angry with Abraham that he didn't argue with God at the Akedah or any other such nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Perfect fulfillment at the Akedah. We'll get to that. Perfect. I mean, perfect. We may not like it. We have questions. We have problems. But Nechumash is perfect. There's no need to talk to him afterwards. It's more along those lines. No need because you don't have to command him what to do. After the Akedah, or the Akedah has demonstrated, he knows perfectly what to do. Perhaps that's that's uh, suggested by this Hitalech Lefanai. And now, and now there's something else. Rabbi Silver? Yes. It's interesting. Ail Achar Italech Lefanai. So Achor Velefanin. Talking about the Akeda, it. Uh, Avram so Ail Achar. Oh, okay, oh, very interesting. Yes. Yeah, my name. That's and right. here Italech Lefanai. Right. Like I, all, I immediately thought about Ail Achar. Achar Vakedem Sartani. Achar Vakedem Sartani. That's an interesting, interesting point that we'll get to the Akedah. The Achar is very interesting over there, difficult. I, I will I want to talk about Achar at the Akedah. We'll, we'll have to wait. Thank you for that. I want to make one last point about Veye Tamim. To be Tamim. Question is, what does tamim mean? It's a wonderful question. And there are, again, a variety of interpretations of the heye tamim. Uh, one interpretation is, to me, simple, but in, in the best sense of simple, to be, to, to have kind of simple faith in God. As what as the Chumash said later on, the other nations, they have monanim and kosmim, and they have all kinds of other magicians. But tamim tiyam Hashem elokecha. You don't try all, none of these kunsim, as we'd say, you know? Be, be, be a tamim, be, be simple. Be, but the interesting is that the word tamim has another valence to it. And the valence for tamim, the word tamim appears in a different context. And it appears in the context of, of, of sacrifices, right? The carbon Pesach said tamim. A, 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 a lamb which is which is unblemished. The word tamim, the word tam, in contrast to a to a to a baumum. A mum is a blemish, but the sacrifices we are commanded in more than one place to take sacrifices that are tamim. The para aduma, which is the kind of sacrifice, para aduma tamima. Tamima tamim. So this strikes me as very interesting because. The first passage is Hayyat Tamim. And if Tamim is taken, it means, probably means a kind of simple faith, perhaps, uh, an unquestioning faith, maybe. But the word Tamim does have that other valence of without Shleimut. blemish. But like the point Shleimut. of Shleimut, completeness. Complete, complete, right? Without, but what is the well, what is the main, what is the sign of the covenant in chapter 17? Circumcision. So it's very interesting, actually, that the sign is circumcision, but the command in the beginning is heye tamim. So what does that mean, actually? That's very interesting that the one one say that the males are told Abraham is told to to that the sign of the covenant is circumcision, and one would argue 
that actually contradicts the idea of tamim. Tamim means when you hate tamim. If tamim means without blemish, and in, in fact, imposing a kind of mum, one might say, strikes us as interesting and maybe points us in an interesting direction. That for the human being to be, to be right? For the human being, sounds like a Hasidic drasha, but I think it's true. For the human being to be whole, is no, right? To be shvure lev, right? Right? God loves the brokenhearted, right? And the point is, right? Lev nishbav and the brokenhearted can, is actually tamim, to, to, to be full, to be the full person who stands before the whole person who stands before God, is never without blemish. Of course, we're all blemished in a hundred ways, but that's the point over here: that to embrace the to embrace our our humanity and to do with our humanity as much as we can do. I do find it very striking that the introduction to the chapter of circumcision begins with the command to become tamim. Because you're not tamim yet, until you impose the blemishes, until you accept the the, the, the limit, human limitations, which is what it comes down to, then you can become tamim. So it's a nice drasha. I also think it's the pshat, which is even better. It's a drasha in the chumash. So we have this very interesting verse by way of introduction to the to the covenant of chapter 17. That's verse number two. So now before we continue with verse number two, and I want to raise the main question I'd like to talk about this morning, but I'll stop here for a moment. Anybody has comments, questions, or insights, whatever, please speak up. Two things. One is one is I wonder about Tamim being being juxtaposed to to um to being a room in the sense of Eden, in the sense of Arma, in the sense of cleverness. Cleverness invo involves concealment of, of what you're really up to. And Tamim is being, is being open, which is circumcision is about being open as opposed to being covered. I like it very much. I do think it's I, the, the larger point, I couldn't agree with you more, that in terms of the Chumash, what happens to Adam and Eve after they partake of the forbidden fruit is they actually hide. Mm -hmm. They hide. The idea of hiding, which is to hide a piece of myself from God, which is not possible, but but that's the human impulse is to conceal. I think there's something to that. So you know, because you conceal when you're part of yourself, you're not being fully with God. And the idea of to be fully there, to be fully present, is something which I think is very much connected to that sin of the garden, and it probably is also connected to something like Hineni, because what Hineni actually means is I am fully present for you. So I think that's a very important point. Maybe we'll encounter that thought uh, as we continue our study. What else did you want to say? And uh, I've forgotten it. Okay. Well, yeah. Does anybody else have something to add here? I'm just saying that I think that Paul Lalechet is uh, repeating itself many times with Abraham. And it's always um, like positive as long as you move, but Right, I think that the point is, remember chapter 17 actually, just the way it's set up, is actually the, the, the middle chapter. Chapter 12 and 22, five chapters before and five chapters later, begin exactly the same way with the command of Lechacha. Uh, it's also true in chapter 13, Kumita So the point is, 
that's a very important theme in Abraham's life. It's the moving forward. One might say perhaps the search for something, the search for the searching for the sacred place. Okay, Canaan is one of them, but within the sacred space, there's another sacred space, but he's always moving forward. He's not static, he's, he's moving forward. And he has to move forward because hey, there's something still missing. And what's missing clearly in the story, well, we'll, we'll see what's missing, but uh, yeah. So that's the command here in chapter 17, verse number one. And the promise, so now the question I want to raise this morning, basic question. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry, it came, it came back and it's kind of important. Go ahead. It's, it's actually, it's actually about, about Tamim being related to what Sara says that Hamasi Alecha. Hamas is exactly the sin of Noah's generation. And he needs to have that fixed. And when, he's, when that's fixed, he will be like Noah Tamim. That's a good point. I like that point. Yeah, it's fitting very well with what we were talking about, for sure. And yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. The, um, right, the, the, the point that we were looking at in terms of Hamasi Alecha, which is very striking, it, is that the, the, the Avro's behavior, okay, from Sarah's perspective, uh, his behavior is not just that he did something wrong, but it's the kind of very primal sin. I mean, it's actually what, it's what caused the world to be destroyed. And what God is promising Abraham in chapter 17, actually, and we'll see this either this week or next, is to build a different kind of world. We have to see the nature of this covenant. The, 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 the covenant is, is very important to understand the covenant. When do you want to say something? Uh, Rabbi, yeah. I think that the development of, uh, of that world of Avraham leads to Yoshev Ahalim for Yaakov, but that couldn't last too long. He also had to go out, not Vayelech, but Vayetze, you know? Okay, we'll see about that. You're right about the word Tam, actually, Yaakov Ishtam, Yoshev Ahalim. That's a very important question. What, is the, what does that mean, Ishtam? It doesn't appear to be a Tam, as we would say, right. far from it, but we'll, 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 we'll hopefully someday get to that uh, chapter 27, but... Uh, uh, actually, chapter 26, that is. Okay, so now my question is, what is the nature of the covenant of chapter 17? Because we already have a covenant. In chapter 15, the Torah said at the end of chapter 15, it's called the Brit Ben Abitarim, and the Torah says, by Yomahu, on that day, God made a covenant with, with Abraham. What was that verse? Chapter 15, uh, verse number 18. So the question is, there it says clearly God made a covenant with Abraham on that very day, covenant about the land, possession of the land, his descendants will someday possess the land. And now the question is, in chapter 17, God says, I make a covenant between me and you, I'll make you very, I will multiply you. And God continues to speak in verse four, for example. You'll become a, you know, the uh, father of a multitude of nations. I will establish, right, my covenant with you and your descendants. An eternal covenant. 
And then again, the promise of the land in verse number, in verse number uh, eight. So we have essentially, one might say a restatement of the covenant. Is it a restatement of the covenant? Is it a new covenant? In this covenant, it's connected to circumcision. It says, The males are to be circumcised, and the Torah sets it out. Uh, and, and when you're eight, eight days old, who has to be circumcised, not just the man, but the, those born in his house, those he acquires as slaves or whatever, midnight kesef. Uh, and this will be the eternal covenant. Failure to do so was very problematic. It's called an arel. Can't be part of the community. So the question is, what is this over here? Is this, is this a new covenant? How does it relate to the covenant of chapter 15? That's the question. Is circumcision a covenant in and of itself? Or is circumcision, as might appear from this chapter, the sign of the covenant, the sign? It's a sign of the covenant, but the covenant is, is the covenant essentially parallel to chapter 15. It's the covenant about the land. You do this, or those, or maybe a prerequisite to entering into the covenant is circumcision for the men, but in fact, it's not really a new covenant. On the other hand, it sounds like it's something new. So how do we understand the relationship between chapters 15 and chapter 17? That's the question I wanted to, to deal with now. And I want to look at this by way of seeing a parallel to chapter 15 and 17. And the parallel actually is in the next book of the Torah, the book of Shemot. And the parallels between chapter three of Exodus and chapter six of Exodus. So let's take a look at chapter three and six. Chapter three is where, chapter three is the story of the burning bush. So we can skip the beginning of that. Moshe is a shepherd. He's watching the flock of his father, Yitro, et cetera. And God, God speaks to, to Moshe, right? The burning bush, don't get too close. Verse number six, and God says, Vayomer, God speaks to Moshe. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, God says, uh, Moshe's afraid. And now God begins to speak in verse number seven. God says, I've seen Oni. I've seen the suffering, the abuse of my people in Egypt. I have, I have heard their cries. I know their pain. There are three verbs over here. I see, says God. I hear and I know. Ra'iti, shamati, yadati. Okay. Look, look at the, look at the, if you turn back for one second to Exodus chapter two, can you just scroll back to Exodus chapter two, the end of chapter two? Can you go back to two, a little more? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It says, that's it, right there. In those days, the king of Egypt died and Israel, the Israelites groaned from the, from the slavery and their cries ascended to God. Verse 24, by and and God heard their cries. And 
and God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Vayar Elohim et Bnei Yisrael, and God saw Israel. Vayeda Elohim, and God knew. That's the end of chapter two, leads into our chapter. Now let's go back to our chapter. What does God say to Moshe? Chapter three, verse number, keep going, keep going. There it is, that verse, verse seven. God said, So what do we notice, my friends? We notice that in verse, this verse, we have three verbs. See, hear, know. At the end of chapter two, describes that God will now get involved in redeeming Israel. We have four verbs. See, Vayarohim, Vayeda, no, Shamati, God hears, right? Vayishma says, God hears. And there's a fourth verb. And God remembered the God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Vayiskar. So what's interesting is three of the four verbs are found here, but the fourth verb is not. It never says God remembers. God sees and God knows and God hears, but it doesn't say that God remembers. So let's bear that in mind. That's very interesting. And as, a, as, a, as, as students of the Bible, we read this and we ask ourselves the question, what happened to the fourth, the fourth verb? What happened to God remembering? Because God is going to enter into the picture here. God enters into the picture. Torah says God remembered the covenant with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. When God speaks to Moshe, God doesn't mention that. Let's read this next verse, verse number eight. Now God says, well, here's the plan. Here's the plan, right? I go down to save them from Egypt and to bring them up from, from right? From, from that land. Where? Eretz tova urechava, to a good and a broad, a spacious land. Eretz tova urechava. Eretz zavat chalav udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. And makom ha-knani, achiti, or emori, prizi, chivi, and yusi, the land of the Canaanites, and it lists, enumerates the nations that live there. That's the description in verse number eight of God's plan. That's the land to which I plan to bring them. Good land, broad land, milk and honey, land of the Canaanites. And if we scroll down a little more, let's see what the next verse is. And the cries come to me, etc., etc. Okay, this is a description. So two things, we have a description of the land. This is the plan. I want to get them out of this place, out of Mitzrayim, to bring them to an Eretz Tova Urechava. That's the plan. Here already in the Chumash, what the Hasidic masters have taught us, which is the Pshad in Chumash, actually, and I wrote about this in my Haggadah, that Mitzrayim, Meitzar is a narrow place. So I'm going to take them out of the narrowness to bring them to a broad place, so Eretz Tova Urechava, to a broad place, Eretz Tova Urechava. Okay, this is chapter three. Now let's go to chapter six for a moment. Let's take a look at chapter six, Exodus six. Right. Moshe had just complained to God and sent me to Egypt. Things got worse, didn't get better. What kind of God are you anyway? You didn't save your people. God said, Ani Hashem. I appeared to them with the name Shaddai. Shmi Hashem, not with the name Hashem. 
and I established my covenant with them. The land of their sojourning, which they lived as sojourners. Gamani Shamati, I've heard the cries of, of Israel. End of verse number five. For as Kor et Riti, I remember my covenant. You jump out of your seat when you read verse number five. You've been waiting for three chapters for the verb to remember, that God remembers. And here, here we have it. The covenant is mentioned in the context of chapter six of Exodus, but it's not mentioned in the context of chapter three. Now, what do we notice about chapter six? Let's just read a little bit more. Let's scroll down a little more. Rachem, tell this to, stop one second. Tell the Israelites, this is the plan. I will take them out, Votseti, I will save them, Vitsalti. I will redeem them, Vigaalti. I will make them my people. I will take them to me as a people. They shall be for me. I, I will be for them a God. And they will know that I am the God who took them, freed them from the labors of the Egyptians. And what's the next verse? Next verse. I will bring them to the land. I will bring them to the land. The translation here is correct, which I swore to give. I made took an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to them as a possession. I am Hashem. That's how the chapter begins. Ani Hashem. So what is interesting over here is the description of the land to which Moshe is to bring them. There's a description in chapter three and there's a description in chapter six. So what is the difference between the description in chapter three and the description in chapter six? So if you think about it, it's actually very striking because chapter three, what God mentions is, God mentions, uh, Eretz Tova Urechava, a broad land, a, a wide land, a spacious land. God mentions Zavad Chalavudvash, flowing with milk and honey. And God mentions the, the nations that presently live there, who apparently are very successful and powerful nations. It's a place where powerful people live. It's a place which is spacious and broad. It's a place of it's a place of wealth. It's a place of Eretz Zavat Chalavut. It's flowing with Okanani. The land is a blessed land. It's a physical and description. It's a physical description. Now you get to chapter six, and it's a completely different description. The description in chapter six, first of all, is Eretz Megurehem Ashegaruba. That's the first description. The land of their sojournings, the land where they were Gerim. That's number one. Number two, it's a land that I swore to give. The Torah here emphasizes the oath. It's a land that I swore to give, right? And most importantly, actually, and the, the deep point I think over here is that the byword of chapter six, the way verse one and verse eight, Ani Hashem. 
It's Ani Hashem means it's actually the land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel in chapter six. It's not actually about the land. There's no mention of milk and honey. There's no mention of big, broad land. On the contrary, it's the land of your sojournings, or you're a ger. It's the land where you're a gerim. But the point of it is Ani Hashem. The point that Moshe, when Moshe is being told something incredibly important, namely that this is a land through which you can connect to God. And that may have many meanings, significances to it. One thing for sure, we know that in the Torah, God basically speaks from the land of the land of Canaan. It's where God speaks from. All the from the time Jacob goes down to Egypt until the burning bush, God never speaks. Mitzrayim is a place, exile means a place where God doesn't speak. We're about to come to Purim, Megillah Esther. It's a book of exile, more than any other book we have. God's never mentioned, God never talks. So this is a radically, it's not a new, it's not the new covenant. And here, Voskoripriti, here actually is where God mentions to Moshe about the covenant. We have no, we don't necessarily assume that Moshe knew about a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapter three. But but not in terms of the covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned in chapter three in terms of something else. I'll get to that in a moment. And now in chapter six, it's the covenant. So your role is not just to, let me put it this way. We have a couple, I have to continue with this next week, but your role, God says to Moshe, is twofold. Chapter three, is taking him out of a place of suffering. The purpose of the land of Canaan is that in Mitzrayim, that's how God starts. I have seen the Oni. As I mentioned several times, Oni, Inui, typically takes the verb to see. I see the suffering. I see it being beaten up. It's not safe to be there. You need to be a safe place. I'm going to take you out from this place and bring you to a different kind of land. There's milk and honey, Eretz Tova, Urchava. You're not going to be cramped. That is to say, you'll have choices. You'll have freedom to choose. That's the message of chapter three. But the message of chapter six is a different message. It's not freedom from slavery. That's the main point. The main point of chapter six is Ani Hashem. It's the place where you can establish a relationship with God. You'll be a free people and you, you can establish the relationship. And the land of Canaan is the place where you can establish the relationship because the Torah maintains that only fully free people can have a full relationship. And therefore, I'm going to bring you to a place that's not about the fancy houses, it's not about the food, it's nothing about that. It has to do with the land, and it's the land that I swore to give. Swore to give means God's name is imposed. I want to talk about this more next week. I think this is an incredibly important point in the book of Shemot. But what's striking is, and we'll see this beginning next week, and then we'll continue with chapter 17, um, that is parallel to chapter 15 and 17 in Breshit, our chapters. I don't believe that chapter 17 is a new covenant. There's one covenant, Brit bin Habitarim. There's a sign of the covenant, circumcision. But it's not actually a new covenant. What it is, is a redefinition of the old covenant, or it's a reformulation of the old covenant. The same way in Sefer uh, Shemot, there's one covenant. There's one covenant. 
to take them out of Egypt and to bring them to the land of Canaan. That's what it's about. That was the promise of Brip and Habitarim. You have the Inu, you have the three generations. I'm going to take them out and I'm going to bring them to this other place. But what is the point? What is your mission, Moshe? What is the message? And the message of covenant, actually, the ultimate covenant, Moshe is not told about that in chapter three. Almost as if to say that's not the main part of the covenant. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So we'll see next week. So for next week, what I want to do is to focus on the parallels between 15 and 17 in Breshit and 3 and 6 in Shemot. See what we can conclude from this and we'll really to reflect upon this. I think it's a very important point about the covenant. And then we will continue our study of chapter 17 and, and move forward. I'd like to see if we can finish the bulk of the Abraham narrative during this, these sessions and then do something additional or different after Pesach. And we'll see about that. Okay, is there any comments or questions? I'll take them now. Is yes, it possible? Six. Is it possible that? Uh, uh, is it possible that "Vinasati et Yadi" is an allusion to the El Shaddai? In other words, it's the promise at Yadi um, and the the Shaddai, which is the promise of uh, eventually bringing them to the Eretz uh, uh, of the Canaanim. I would say that the we don't actually. I, the truth is that the the idea that God swears nasati in, yadi in the in the Bible, you have it even in, in in the United States of America. Raise your right hand. Do you swear? Right. We have the same thing. Right. Um, we have it with uh, with al uh, It's a kind of oath. We have it in the mission the mission in Shavuot about when you swear you maybe hold the Torah, you hold the sacred object. So it is an oath, but the question is, where do we find in Breshit that God swears? And there is one place that God takes an oath about the covenant. But we'll have to wait to see that. But that's, that's a very important point that there actually isn't, there is an oath. There is, the promise is actually an oath. I'm not sure it's tied in with the name Shaddai per se, but it certainly is true that the covenantal promise in Sefer Breshit is in fact, and God does in fact swear, and where God swears is very interesting. We'll, we'll discuss that. Are there any other comments or questions? Yes, yeah, six, six. Well, one at a time. What's interesting? <laughs> yes, I've been interrupted every time I've opened my mouth. Okay, speak. That what what's interesting is that he's not sending them to something that's going to be easy, because there's all these people there. It's true. And, you know, it's not going to be you're walking into a wonderful land full of milk and honey that there's yours just to, to, to walk into. This is I mean, in chapter eight. three, right. In chapter three, the Canaanites are presently there. That's true. Yeah. That, that part is true. I, I'm not sure that in chapter three, though, what you're saying is certainly correct. Yeah. It's never easy. And in chapter six, by the way, there's not even a mention of milk and honey or anything like that. Yeah. It talks about the land of your sojournings, the land of your wandering, the land where you yes. were a stranger. It talks about the land that God swore. Yes. And it talks about connecting to God. What it's about is the land as a vehicle, as a medium to connect to God. Mm -hmm. One thing in the Chumash is certainly true. The Chumash, and so with the book of Breshit, never suggests it's going to be easy. The terms of the covenant don't suggest that at all. No. If anything, they suggest exactly the opposite. It suggests a lot of suffering with no payback in your own lifetime. That's what the Chumash does suggest. I mean, that's what it says, basically. So 
I don't think anybody could suggest that the Chumash is about having an easy life. I mean, there are, you know, there are other blessings besides the covenantal one. Ishmael has a blessing, Esav has a blessing, but that's not the covenantal blessing. The covenantal blessing comes at an enormous price, which most people don't want to pay, but that's what the Chumash sets out. So your point that perhaps even in chapter three, the point about the Kanani being there at present suggests that it won't be so simple to, to possess the land. That's an interesting point. That may be that may be the case. The larger point that it's not easy is certainly the case. Okay, I'll take a couple more questions. Someone who yeah, hasn't chapters. spoken. Yeah, chapters. What's that? Sure. Is anybody else who hasn't spoken yet and wants to say something? Oh yeah, I was just going to make the point. Actually, that they, it was just made now that God Aiden Hashem gave us the free ride, but every time after that we have to kill people to get to the promised land. I mean, killing is one thing, but even if you don't have to kill people, the point is it's it's a struggle to well, it's a struggle to to possess the land, but the biggest struggle in the Bible is actually is actually staying in the land. And that's to do with killing. If you misbehave, the Torah says explicitly, the land will spit you out. And the larger biblical narrative is about exile. Let's, let's not forget that. The larger biblical narrative is about our, our failings to be able to be, to be worthy of, of, of standing before God. That is, the, that is the story of the Bible, generally speaking. There are certainly points of light along the way. But at the end of the day, the narratives end with the Book of Malachim. The Book of Malachim ends with, with exile. So it's, you know, it's the promise of return. So for sure, it's about, I would say, not just about wars to possess it. But I think the biggest struggle is to keep it. And the Torah makes it clear. If you misbehave, you won't keep it. I kick them out because they misbehave. I'll throw you out if you misbehave. That's clear. Okay, one last comment. Yeah, chapter six, I think you're working too hard because shot in chapter six is, is, is God is answering Moshe, yeah, I didn't do it yet, but here's how you know I'm good for doing it. I made a promise. Well, that's maybe true, but I don't think I'm working too hard. In other words, listen, I don't mind working hard. But the second point is, what you're saying doesn't contradict. God is responding to Moshe and actually criticizing Moshe, at least that's how Chazal read it with a powerful criticism, namely, that's the first Rashi. You know, in the old days, those people that I dealt with, and they saw no benefits. They always, they struggled their whole lives and they never complained about it. And here you come, you're a newbie and you're already complaining to me. This is not right. You know, the old, the, the old timers were a lot better than you. That's, that's the way Chazal read it. I think it's actually a pshat. In other words, but I'll come back to that next week to chapter six and what it means with Shmi Hashem or Ladati Lahem. I'll get to that. Okay, I'll stop at this point and uh, good. So we'll continue next week. We'll finish this up in chapter 17 as we move forward. Thank you.